Hello, I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. Hey, and I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Echo and Substance Use from the BCCSU. We are recording on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist. I'm also the physician education lead here at the BCCSU and the medical director at the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. It's great to be with you, Christy. I'm a journalist. I've spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, mental health, and the current overdose crisis. This is a podcast for healthcare providers. Dr. Sutherland and I will be focusing on issues in British Columbia on opioid use disorder. David, I am so excited to do this with you and have these interesting conversations. We're going to hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experiences on approaches to substance use. If you haven't offered treatment for substance use disorder at your practice before, it can seem daunting, but it doesn't have to be. Probably you already have patients in your practice who would benefit from these interventions. Today, we're talking about bringing treatment for opioid disorder into your practice. I'm really excited to talk about this, Christy. I think it's something that's so practical and not just something in Vancouver, but across the province. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can be a, like one big step, um, but that can really impact yeah, the people that you care for. We're actually going to hear about one of those big steps today. We're going to talk to a family doctor who changed her own practice entirely when she started working with marginalized patient populations. And I'm also looking forward to hearing the interview you did, David, with a peer worker in Quenelle about the challenges patients can face, especially in a rural context. Christy, you must have a memory of first starting out in this field. You weren't always in addictions treatment, presumably. Yeah, well, it was my first job was in the downtown east side. And I remember just how naive and confused I was by everything. Uh, it took me quite a while. And even now, I still learn things every day from my patients. Uh, but I sort of laugh to think about myself 10 years ago. And for some of my patients, they've been with me this whole time, uh, even my practice, and they can, sometimes we get nostalgic about what things were like uh, and about how my practice has changed. When I first started, methadone was the only medication to offer for opioid disorder. So if methadone didn't work, you just would offer methadone again, or you'd be like, do you want to go up on your methadone? What about splitting your methadone dose? And now we have methadone, we have buprenorphine, we have uh, sustained released oral morphine, I have iot, I have tiot, I have so much on the go uh, for my patients with opioid disorder that the options are, you know, it's luxurious to be able to give people choice. That's great. Well, before we get to our interview, Christy, is there one thing that you find has been the most rewarding about getting into this practice that you might share with the listeners? Uh, I love longitudinal care and community. I love chatting with people about their lives. I like uh, hearing their opinions on things. I like it when patients tell me about, you know, political views and their movies that they like and how things are with their family and uh, then how things are going with their wounds. So I just like talking basically. So this it's good I'm doing this podcast with you, David. Uh, and that's why I love clinic because all I do is talk all day long with people I care about. Well, I hope that leaves you inspired, and uh, let's go to our interview. Dr. Michelle Brisson is a doctor with Health Connections Clinic in North Vancouver, and she's also a former presenter with ABC Echo on substance use. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you. I wanted to start just uh, talking about your, the work you're doing. Your clinic focuses on serving patients who don't have a GP or a nurse practitioner, but who have complex medical needs, uh, medical, mental health, addictions, socioeconomic needs. Um, but you used to have a more general practice as a family doctor. Could you tell us a bit about why you made the switch? Sure. Yeah, I had a, a more traditional full-service family practice. Um, my practice was uh, near UBC in West Point Grey. And I was there for about 15 years. Uh, I worked in a group and did 
you know, obstetrics and extended care, lots of pediatrics, sort of the full usual spectrum. And there was a time when my family life became quite hectic and I realized I couldn't carry on with my traditional family practice the way it was and had to make a change in my career and just happened to be in the right place at the right time when Health Connection Clinic was establishing itself. And so I, I began with them as they opened their doors uh, to the at-risk population. What kind of services do you offer patients? What, what's, the, what's unique about it? I think what's unique about it is it's team-based care in the true sense. So I work with a social worker, nurse practitioners, we have an addiction nurse, uh, we have a primary care nurse, and it's very team-based. We're often visiting with our patients with more than one of us in the room or um, sharing information, uh, trying to meet the needs of the patient from a much broader scope that you can possibly get to in a more traditional family practice. So looking at all the psychosocial factors, their um, precarious housing, and trying to address that first and foremost, because we find if we can't address that, we can't really do much with their medical care. And then working on uh, mental health and, and addiction is a, a big piece of it as well. Do you have any advice for primary health care providers maybe hoping to kind of follow your footsteps to develop their own addictions medicine practice if they don't have one? I really just dipped my toe in. I thought I was just taking these tiny little baby steps. I had no idea I'd end up where I am now doing so much opioid agonist therapy on a daily basis. But I really went into it just one step at a time. And I, I, I think that would be piece of advice, I guess, that I could suggest to others is that um, do what you're comfortable and gain gain confidence as you go. When I first started, I, I thought, well, I'll just prescribe to patients that are already on Suboxone. They're stable. They just need, you know, they need primary care. I know how to do that. So I will be their primary care physician, but I could also prescribe their Suboxone. They don't need to go somewhere else for that. And so that was my first goal was just to try to meet that need. And then from there, just sort of gradually became more uh, confident with it. Um, so I think starting slowly and and I guess other piece of advice would be having colleagues that you can call on and share advice. Race line is extremely available. Um, addiction consults will often take a call, even if they're not actually on call. And so I found that um, there was so much support uh, for people like myself who were getting into an area that they really knew not that much about <laughs> when I started. Thinking about, um, as I'm a fee-for-service family doctor in community, and thinking about our fee-for-service colleagues, um, when they only have 10 to 15 minutes with a patient, and maybe that's even generous, can you give us a, a few tips for those um, in community who are working on that tight timeline for integrating this kind of care into their office? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really hard. I think trying to break things down into smaller bites, into smaller chunks, and maybe recognizing that you can't talk about everything at every visit, but you can tell the patient that you care about what their other problems are, that those are, that they're important, they're, they are a priority, and that you'd like to work on it with them if they wanted to work on it with you. And so that if you're able to rebook, or nowadays, of course, we're doing telehealth, so that adds another layer of efficiency where, you know, maybe you just want to 
provide some education around what their options are, for example. And that could be done in a 10-minute uh, slot, and that could be done by phone. In terms of Suboxone starts, I, I know that is a challenge in a 10-minute visit. You have to make sure you're not going to put them into precipitated withdrawal. So there's certain procedures and guidelines that have to be carefully followed. And traditionally, that would be done in an office while you're waiting for them uh, to ensure they're not going into withdrawal. So that's a big time suck and also a big use of the real estate in your office. But what we're finding now is that we're we're doing starts in other ways. So we're 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 doing home starts, for example, if they're stable and comfortable with that, and we're doing micro inductions if they're stable and comfortable, with, or maybe not stable but comfortable with that. And so, I don't know how that will unfold down the road with respect to a more traditional family practice, but those are options that may make it more achievable and attainable for a family practice. You mentioned um, uh, withdrawal and real estate in the waiting room, which was my next question and uh, kind of combines two. But is there anything uh, front of house, house staff uh, could be trained on or that you found helpful in terms of uh, working with someone going through withdrawal or someone who's brought a lot of possessions in with them to take that space? It's uh, so funny thinking about it. Everything's changed so much with COVID. I mean, now, traditionally, anyway, we've let our, our patients bring their belongings with them, whether that's their bike or you know, their bags. Uh, we tend to let them bring them in if we're comfortable from a safety perspective. Um, COVID's changed that a little bit, I guess, hopefully temporarily. Uh, our front staff uh, have become comfortable uh, as they've gotten to know these patients. And I think they, they do a, a huge amount with respect to putting patients at ease and treating them with respect and helping them understand that we see this as just another chronic illness, that we don't see any more uh, stigma attached to this than we do, you know, a diabetic who needs their insulin. Um, and so trying to make that the mindset. Uh, we, we actually redesigned a room in our office for Suboxone Starts. And we use that room a lot, but we, we don't actually do as many starts in there as we thought we would do, but we have that space if we need it. And it, I think for patients to have extra space is wonderful, but it's not always an option. I appreciate. What's the one thing that you find the most satisfying about your practice and taking care of people who use drugs? There's a lot of things, but I would say their appreciation. They're so grateful. Uh, not every day, not every person, not every time. But when they are grateful, it's so genuine and they so they just so appreciate what you're doing for them because they know their life is on the line and they know that they can't get that care everywhere. Um, and that's really rewarding to be able to offer that. Mm, it sounds really humbling and, and uh, rewarding, as you said. Uh, what's one thing that a primary care provider listening to this can start doing tomorrow in their practice? I know that getting set up takes a bit more effort. And as you mentioned, there's some office space issues, but is there something that people can get started on this road? I think even just asking about it, honestly, uh, and you might, especially with our opioid overdose crises, I mean, everybody has been touched by that. 
and it, they may know somebody, have a family member or a friend, and just opening that conversation to what's it been like for you? And have you been affected by this? And I think just starting that conversation, maybe thinking to screen for it more in the periodic health exams when we do our our you know list of prevention questions and and then I think if one is interested in getting into prescribing suboxone is a great place to start and just even being okay about taking a patient that's already on it it's like you know we talked about diabetes and insulin so if someone has started on insulin maybe you wouldn't have been jumping up to start the insulin but once they're on it and they're stable we all are comfortable taking that over and we know we have backup if we run into trouble and the suboxone is very similar to that, I think. And so I think that's a, a place to start uh, and maybe finish too. Like <laughs> that would be a great service, honestly. I think that would be terrific. Thank you so much, Dr. Brisson, for your work and your expertise and your time with us today. Thanks, Christy. That was Dr. Michelle Brisson. She's a doctor with Health Connections Clinic in North Vancouver and also a former presenter with the BC Echo on substance use. I love talking with Dr. Brisson. I really like what she said about the joy in providing care for this patient population because it really is such rewarding work. It's also a great reminder not to make assumptions about who has substance use disorder in the first place and that not all cases are in Vancouver itself either. Absolutely. And that leads us to our next guest. Charlene Burmeister is the Provincial Peer Coordinator for the Centre for Disease Control in Quinell and is a member of the Northern BC Patient Safety and Quality Council. I started doing this work in 2010 uh, in regards to a research project around illicit substance use in my rural remote community of Quinell, BC. I am a person with lived and living experience with substance use and that's kind of where I started doing my work and just kind of catapulted me through this process of recognizing the importance of people with lived and living experience being involved in the design, delivery, and development of services in which we may be accessing. Why is uh, you know, the voice of people with lived experience and peers so important uh, in terms of the actual healthcare services people get? Well, I think that um, healthcare systems recognize the importance of uh, client-centered approaches and the unfortunate situation is that uh, quite often people are involved in the processes to form the design, delivery, and development of services in which whatever healthcare service we may be talking about. But for some reason, historically, people with lived and living experience have not been given the same uh, respectful opportunity to engage in that. Um, I'm not sure if it's in regards to stigma. Quite often, some people seem to think that we don't have the ability to make decisions, informed decisions around our own self-care and in, within systems of healthcare. And so that's why I think it's really important that we balance out the inequity of how those systems work. You mentioned some of the stigma that could come into uh, frontline care provision. What are some of the barriers that uh, you and others have found accessing, say, a physician or nurse at a clinic, that kind of thing? Personally, I think that I would recognize that I have been white middle-class privilege uh, for most of my life and uh, have a strong personality who's able to advocate for myself and recognize that not everybody is that privileged. And so my access to healthcare has looked um, quite different than some of the disparities that I see amongst other people. I think it's a really is centered around stigmatizing ideals about people who maybe who who use substances and how that informs 
um, physicians and nurses and other people within those healthcare sectors on how they um, approach and address and support people in those systems. And I think people that present with many challenges, quite often it just seems that it's easier for doctors and physicians and other people to just kind of step away from that process because it's challenging. And that's one of the biggest things that I see that create those barriers to access of service and lack of compassion, of understanding, and just the stigmatizing ideals that people make their choices and therefore wherever they are in life is something they brought on themselves. Is that just in terms of accessing, uh, say, treatment for substance use or does this apply across the board to other if someone goes in with another health need that may or may not be related to their substance use there definitely is a um, correlation between that i think that people are often labeled as non-compliant um, and drug seeking and all of those other components and that sometimes people's pain management isn't taken into consideration. It's just really around uh, people's ideals thinking that you know people are drug seeking and all those other components that are that may be a reality in some cases, but I think that there, there's a bigger um, concern that people seem to be missing around uh, supporting people who may have or may be using substances. And so I just think there's a real inequity in access to services and that it's something that we need to address through education and um, engaging people with lived experience uh, humanizes us in many ways. And I, and I do see benefits when we have those opportunities uh, to be seen as humans and people that are just real and that we you know, deserve the same access to care. I wondered if there's any particular aspects of being in a northern community like Quesnel or even more remote rural places that you might be connected to uh, through your networks that should be considered by health providers when they if they want to make sure that they're providing better access, listening to people's voices, that sort of thing. Wow, that is a really big one for me. From the work that I do, I see that there's um, a constant uh, diversion of energy to try to um, educate people who are in opposition of the work that we do and and have them lean towards the evidence-based approaches that we know uh, really lend to the best health outcomes for people with lived and living experience and, and community members overall. And that uh, quite often the disparities that we see uh, for people in rural remote communities and in health authorities that are not as a progressive as, you know, Vancouver coastal area and that type of stuff. It's just, it's constant work. Are there any particular practices that physicians, nurses, clinicians could uh, start implementing that would benefit many substance users trying to access care? Engaging people with lived and living experience within their practice and within their health authorities and other agencies that were leadership and stakeholders. And I caution the word stakeholders because when we talk about harm reduction in the present overdose crisis, there is no larger stakeholder than people with lived and living experience. Um, But I would really just say create relationship and give opportunity for people with lived and living experience to help um, with knowledge exchange and uh, you know some of the opportunities that are out there for educational opportunities on both sides and creating partnership, collaboration, and, and moving that work forward overall together for, for what that can look like for community and personally for people. Mm-hmm. It's really about investing in people with lived experience to continue to network and build our capacity and move that work forward. I really wanted to thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. That was Charlene Burmeister. She's Provincial Peer Coordinator for the Centre for Disease Control and lives in Quesnel, BC. 
Like Charlene says, the stigma facing people who use drugs is a huge barrier to accessing care. And to go forward, we really need to invest in people with lived experience of using drugs. It seems like that's a big lesson that so many people have learned here in British Columbia. And I hope that can spread as far and wide as possible because it's the future of research and I think the future of treatment. Yeah, we need to be so respectful of the experience and knowledge that people have. And we have a lot to learn as we have today on the show. Opiate agitist treatment, or OAT as we call it, is a high impact intervention for a family doctor to offer. It decreases mortality and improves quality of life. Once you have a rhythm and workflow for your office, you can seamlessly incorporate it into your primary care clinic. You probably already have patients who would benefit from OAT. Once you have this to offer, you will find people who you already care for who will benefit from these medications. There are specific MSP codes for family doctors in BC to support you to do this work and it recognizes the time it takes. There is a lot of joy in providing care for this patient population. It is very rewarding work. You can incorporate motivational interviewing into your skill set of clinical care. It will make your day easier. You can have collaborative conversations with your patients that evoke change and promote autonomy. Thank you to all of our guests today, Dr. Michelle Broussant and Charlene Burmeister. What great conversations we had today, David. Yeah, and I hope really practical ones. This is a very practical episode, I feel. Totally. This has been Addiction Practice Pod, the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use. The program runs bi-weekly interactive online sessions for primary care practitioners who want to enhance their knowledge of substance use care and maybe bring it into your practice. You can learn more and register at the website bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. There are clinical guidelines for treating opiate use disorder. You can find them in our show notes, as well as online courses if you want to bring this kind of compassionate care into your own clinic. We've included these as well in our show notes, where you'll find a short survey. We'd love to hear from you so we can create the best possible podcast for primary care providers. And this show has been produced by the BC Centre on Substance Use and made possible by a financial contribution of Health Canada. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.